You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 11. Generations. Two photographs taken 84 years apart. The first shows my father as a baby with his great-grandmother Rivka and his youngest uncle Julius. The second shows Dad holding his new grandson Felix. John Tyler stands with James Buchanan and Millard Fillmore as one of the less-remembered US presidents. Maybe his home state of Virginia has a few schools and public buildings named after him, but we shouldn't count on ever seeing his face added to Mount Rushmore. Historians view his time in office as at best uneventful and at worst incompetent. And like many incompetent presidents since, he served only one term before losing to the equally forgettable James Polk. In fact, the only remarkable thing about John Tyler, elected in 1841 at the age of 50, is that at the time of recording this, one of his grandchildren is still alive. Harrison Ruffin Tyler was born in 1928 and now provides a huge living generational link with the past. But is this so unusual? If you were aged over 50, the chances are that you probably knew someone who fought in the Great War. And it's likely that they knew someone who fought in Crimea, who in turn knew someone who fought against Napoleon. A couple more steps and we're in the English Civil War. A mere 20 generations back from that and we're witnessing the Battle of Hastings. History is closer than we think. A few years after Avrom and Shandle, my great-grandparents, settled in Britain, news came from Odessa that Avrom's father died and that his mother Rivka was now a widow. After letters back and forth, the family decided that Rivka now in her sixties, should come to Britain and live with her son's family. With four, later five, young children, this was a godsend. For having a grandma to look after the kids freed her daughter-in-law Shandle to find work and put much-needed food and money on the table. Rivka enjoyed her new life in the UK and doted on her grandchildren. She never properly mastered English, but this was the East End over a century ago, where the streets reverberated to her native Yiddish in much the same way as they reverberate to Bengali or Somali today. She took to her new life in London well, enjoying the bustle of Hessel Street and Watley Street markets, with the same sounds and smells of Odessa, but without the threat of marauding Cossacks or Tsarist pogroms. Every Sunday afternoon, she took her grandchildren to the local cinema. Silent films presented no language barrier, and even if the subtitles proved too involved, there was always a handy grandson or granddaughter to translate. Even better, she adored watching live drama at one of the many Yiddish theatres then filmed in the East End. My grandmother once told me about accompanying Rivka to watch a Yiddish production of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, it must have been a very free translation, because Shylock, one of Shakespeare's great villains, now found himself remodelled as a heroic victim of Venetian anti-Semitism. Meeting his downfall at the hands of decadent Gentiles in league with his treacherous daughter Jessica, with grace and dignity. His Rialto speech, 
the one with, if you prick us, do we not bleed, had the audience in tears. Rivka witnessed the arrival of her first great-grandchild, my father Paul, in 1925. A few months later, along with her great-grandson Julius, they sat for a photo at Boris Bennett's studio on Whitechapel Road. Eighty-four years after this photo was taken, I surprised and delighted Dad when at fifty I became a very old father myself. Which brings me to the second photo, showing Dad holding his youngest grandson Felix for the first time on the 29th of December 2009. Rivka died in 1937, three years short of her hundredth birthday. To put this in context, Rivka shared her birth, 1840, with Emil Zola, Thomas Hardy and Peter Tchaikovsky, the year that saw Franz Liszt make his concert debut and the introduction of the Penny Post. 169 years later, Felix's birth year gave us Lady Gaga, Pointless, Avatar and Bitcoin. And in both photos, connecting Rivka and Felix across six generations, sits my father. Looking at the two photos side by side, I can't help noticing the stiff nature of the older photo compared with the informality of the recent one. Rivka is all in black, the standard attire for a widow in her best clothes. My great-uncle Julius, aged nine, is in the suit with short trousers he no doubt wore for Saturday best. He has taken the trouble to polish his shoes and pull his socks up, but his tie is slightly askew. My dad, in a baby's nightgown, looks as aware of his surrounding as babies usually are at a few months old. But at least he's facing in the right direction. In the more recent photo, my dad is now around the same age as Rivka in the Whitechapel portrait, wearing the John Lewis casuals that marks him out since retirement. It's a joyful picture, but it needs saying one tinged with sadness, because Felix was born just seven months after his grandma Carrie passed away. A grandma who I just know would have loved him to bits. Having a new grandson to dote on became central to Dad's life. Whenever we visited Dad, he was quick to suggest that my wife Anita and I go out on our own for a while and leave him for some quality Felix time. And like all parents, we seized on the opportunity to sit in a pub and be ourselves for a while. Dad passed away in September 2012. Today I asked Felix how much, if anything, he remembers of his grandpa. He recalls Dad giving him chocolate when his parents weren't looking, and he remembers hearing him sing the galloping major, bumpity 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 bump, while bouncing on his knee. A few sketchy but fond recollections by a 13-year-old boy of a man who knew a woman born in the year Victoria married Albert. That was Generations, written and recorded by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this story, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.
You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 12. The Isle of Wight Festival. The soft pink panther doll, sitting just to the right of the ghost jug on the mantelpiece, is of little consequence. It's the psychedelic badge I pinned to it 23 years ago that stands out. A small button from the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival. My brother John gave me the badge a year or so before he died. Within a few decades, the music festival has morphed from chaotic hippie love-in to an essential component of the entertainment industry's business model. Even though weekend tickets to Glastonbury 2022 cost £285 each, they still sold out within minutes. It's now common to see fancy, multi-roomed tents at Glastonbury housing three generations of music fans. Witness the grandparents there for the Sunday afternoon Tom Jones slot. The mums and dads, eager to see whichever 90s Britpop or Manchester band has reformed for the occasion. And the teenage kids, hoping to catch something for older generations to sneer at. And finally, one band, probably Madness, will unite them all on Sunday evening for a big family knees-up. The 1970 Isle of Wight Festival was a different animal. A muddy hellhole of chaos over four days. But what a line-up. Your £3 weekend ticket bought you sets by The Who, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Joni Mitchell, Miles Davis, Jethro Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer... Sly and the Family Stone, The Moody Blues, Free, Family, oh, and Tiny Tim. There were no acts to satisfy the older clientele because in 1970 no dad or grandma would be seen dead at the Isle of Wight and the idea of an equivalent Sunday Gracie Field slot was patently absurd. This one was strictly for the kids. I remember John, aged 17, leaving the house to join his friends at Victoria for the train to the ferry terminal. He departed on Friday morning, looking like the fresh-faced proto-hippie I knew, and returned the following Tuesday, looking gaunt, pale, and probably in need of delousing, all the while insisting he'd had a great time. At age 11, I was too into my balsa aircraft modelling to show much interest in the festival or its music, It was only sometime during the early 90s that the subject came up in conversation. John reacted to my enthusiasm the way he always did, with the same supercilious detachment he normally displayed ever since we were kids. Many younger, and especially youngest, siblings will understand how as we get older, while age differences between friends and lovers evaporate, The gap in years between John and I steadfastly remained at six years, even in our thirties. So, I asked, what was Sly and the family stone like? They were all right. And the doors? Not bad. What about Jimi Hendrix? I didn't see him. There was a pause. You missed him? I was asleep. You slept through Jimi Hendrix? He came on at about three in the morning. To a classic rock fan like me, this was sacrilege, like nipping to the gents during the Sermon on the Mount. You do realise that the Isle of Wight was Hendrix's last UK gig. He was dead a few weeks later. 
Well, I wish someone could have warned me he was going to choke on his own vomit. I might have made more of an effort. Anyway, it was no big deal. I pressed on. So, out of all the bands you saw there, who was the best? He thought for a moment. Probably Emerson, Lake and Palmer. From bad to worse. In his view, the finest band at the Isle of Wight were a progressive rock trio given to bombastic faux-classical nonsense and interminable keyboard solos. Their over-the-top stage shows and pompous albums subsequently made them, perhaps unfairly, a byword for all that's wrong with 70s music. Emerson, Lake and Palmer were why punk had to happen. To spotty Herberts like me, they were the enemy. ELP? What was so good about them? You could hear them. A fair point. The Isle of Wight featured bands playing to 700,000 stoned and filthy punters. But while most of the music was barely audible beyond the first ten rows, ELP was a supergroup, formed especially to cash in on the growth of massive festival and stadium gigs. They took to the stage in front of a wall of martial amps and an army of sound and lighting technicians, all with the aim of creating an open-air spectacle for an open-air crowd. As for Hendrix, I had a similar conversation with a 30-something Romanian colleague in a bar while working in Helsinki a few years ago. I casually mentioned to him in passing the post-punk Manchester band I saw play Walthamstow Youth Centre in 1979. You saw Joy Division? Some heads turned in the bar at his shouty excitement. Sure I saw them. I also saw the adverts, the clash and the Ramones. It's one of the advantages of being old. But Joy Division, what were they like? I could have told him they were brilliant, that I immediately knew that their blistering talent was about to redraw the map of popular culture in a way that influences music to this day. But I would have been lying. If I remember anything at all, it was the lead singer given to waving his arms around for no apparent reason, and amplification so distorted that it left the band sounding like noisy, incoherent sludge. In other words... A typical live gig at Walthamstow Youth Centre. Someone interviewing George Harrison during the 1980s posed a detailed question about his former band, which met with a slightly detached response. You have to realise that if we'd known we were the Beatles, we'd have paid more attention. And that's roughly the answer I gave my friend in Helsinki. I didn't know that this bunch of Mancunian no-hopers would record two classic albums some even more classic singles, suffer the suicide of their lead singer and carry on without him as new order to become bona fide 80s legends. So if even George Harrison wasn't aware of his cultural importance at the height of Beatlemania, what chance do the rest of us of knowing we're in the presence of greatness, be it Hendrix or Joy Division? Jimi Hendrix's fatal overdose came three weeks after playing the Isle of Wight. For some reason, I clearly remember Robert Dougal quite matter-of-factly announcing it on BBC News the next day. It was the third news item, probably coming after some long-forgotten bust-up between Georges Pompidou and Edward Heath. Grown-ups run television, 
and back then, grown-ups didn't care much about the demise of a hairy weirdo rock guitarist. As John said about missing Hendrix's gig, it was no big deal. That date, the 19th of September 1970, also happened to be the opening day of the first ever Glastonbury Festival. I have no recollection of John's comments on the Who's live set at the Isle of Wight. Perhaps I should have paid more attention. That was the Isle of Wight Festival, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 13. The Album. A framed vinyl album from 1987 hangs on the wall at the foot of the stairs. Its cover is in the format of an old variety playbill, with some of the names still familiar, others less so. The title of the album, Live at Jongleur's, refers to the once-popular comedy venue off Lavender Hill. Glancing at eBay as I write, a near-mint-condition copy can be yours for £21, making it a collector's item. Don't all bid at once. In the mid-1980s, I worked for a film unit managed by Waltham Forest Council. Reading that previous sentence back only fills me with wonder at a time when a local authority had the budget and the wherewithal to run a film unit. We made promotional videos for council initiatives and community groups, shooting and editing footage to raise awareness of worthwhile causes and local issues. In 1985, the cold winds of public cutbacks finally hit us and the unit closed. Three of us decided to go it alone, shooting small-scale corporate films during the week and weddings at weekends. But our filmmaking careers continued more out of a sense of having little else to do than from any wish to rival MGM. We've already encountered my friend Ollie in the Lionel Bart chapter, auditioning for Oliver. Seven years earlier, he was a struggling drama school graduate yet to receive his equity card. In those days, If you weren't in the Actors' Union equity, you couldn't get any professional work. But you needed to prove you had undertaken professional acting work in order to join equity. Don't think for a moment that this strange Catch-22 was some communist conspiracy to freeze out young talent. The biggest supporters of this closed shop were the hard-right faction of equity, run by the likes of Kenneth Williams and Leonard Rossiter. There were valid arguments both for and against the closed shop, but the main point is that Ollie was trying and failing every possible angle to get that sodding equity card. Out of desperation, he turned to me. Matt, you remember those songs you wrote when we were back at uni? How about we put together a group and sing them a cappella on the comedy circuit? While we were both undergraduates, I penned a few comical and frankly tasteless songs for some or other end-of-term review.
typical student fare about social injustice and questionable sexual practices. If shooting and editing training films for light engineering firms or filming weddings in Chingford had been even slightly exciting, I might have said, do me a favour. But I needed little persuasion. We formed the group and named it, for reasons not worth discussing, the Draylon Underground. All we needed now was to find some gigs. At this time, the comedy circuit was still something of a cottage industry. Even though the likes of Ben Elton and Rick Mayle were now household names, it was still possible to break into comedy simply by buying a copy of Time Out magazine, going through the comedy listings and calling the phone numbers attached to each venue. With a little schmoozing, you got booked for a five-minute unpaid tryout spot, and if you survived the bear pit that was a London comedy club, you might, just might, be rebooked for a paid gig. People still view the old comedy circuit as the preserve of namby-pamby political correctness, beloved of Guardian readers and liberal arts lecturers. A place where comedians got laughs by simply shouting, Thatcher! The reality was that it operated on a level of social Darwinism even the Iron Lady might have found harsh. Regardless of any hatred for Norman Tebbit or love for Tony Benn, you either made the punters laugh or found another way to occupy your time. There were no other criteria. Partly because there weren't many other comedy a cappella groups around, we quickly got paid gigs all over London. False modesty aside, I should add that we were also bloody good. The massively cynical club audiences hadn't experienced anything like the Draylon Underground before. A comedy music act with original songs that actually made them laugh. We were never wry, cheerful, cheeky or any other euphemism for unfunny, so we breezed through weeks of guest spots with barely a bad gig. I still remember those first three months at the beginning of 1987 as some of the most thrillingly happy of my life. In February, barely a month after we started, we got an offer to appear on the telly. A producer spotted us at a strange hippie venue near Turnpike Lane called Earth Exchange and called us in for a meeting at his office on Oxford Street. As we feared, the question came, are you all members of Equity? The two women in the group, Maggie and Sue, were already seasoned professionals with fully paid up cards. But Ollie still wasn't a member, and at this point I had been in showbiz for approximately six weeks. If this meeting had taken place with a BBC producer in Shepherd's Bush, it would probably have ended there. But Cabaret at the Jongleurs was a new type of TV production, being the first BBC light entertainment show made by an external company. That shouldn't be a problem, smiled the producer. I'm sure we can sneak you through. Recording took place in April 1987. Two weeks later, Ollie and I presented our contracts to the powers that be and got our equity cards. And a few weeks after that, the invitation came to record the album. By this time, Jongleurs was vying with the Comedy Store as the circuit's flagship venue and wanted to cash in on its status afforded by the TV show. From a remembered conversation in the communal dressing room, I can pinpoint the exact date of the recording as the 14th of May, 1987. 
Did you see on the news that Rita Hayworth died? said Arthur Smith. Gilda. Must be the sexiest film ever made. I'd better lend you my copy of Debbie Does Dallas then, said Paul Merton. The album didn't trouble the charts, but that didn't matter. The mere fact of its release chalked us up within the comedy world as an established act. We never became household names. At least I'm pretty sure no one ever mentioned us in your household. But we got regular work, some of it lucrative, some just about covering the bus fare home. And seeing how hard it was for many of my friends to break in led me to arrogantly think, this showbiz lark is easy. I don't see what all the fuss is about. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Breaking in was easy. Sustaining momentum was a grindstone deserving its own chapter. About 30 years later, I met Paul Merton and mentioned how we both once featured on a comedy album. Live at Jongleurs, he immediately fired back. It must have been about the last ever comedy album recorded on vinyl. I've still got it framed on my wall. That was The Album, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 14. The Salami. A yellowing letter from the Ministry of Agriculture dated the 28th of July, 1993. If you've never been to New York City, you should. In fact, given the chance, everyone should. The great thing about New York is how incredibly New Yorky it is. By that I mean that, to an outsider, it's like a giant three-dimensional film set where any moment you expect to see a 1960s Jack Lemmon turn the corner holding a briefcase and looking anxious, or a 1970s Dustin Hoffman jogging past you in Central Park. And nowhere is the city's New Yorkiness more apparent than at Katz's Delicatessen on Houston Street. You might think you know nothing about Katz's, but you do, I can assure you. It's the Jewish restaurant on Lower East Side where Meg Ryan faked an orgasm and the old lady told the waiter, I'll have what she's having. In the middle of the main dining area of Katz's hangs a sign advertising their international delivery service. Send a salami to your boy in the army. In 1993... My brother John was an occasional correspondent for the BBC's holiday programme. In one episode, he covered New York, which meant staying at the Pennsylvania Hotel, with its Glenn Miller phone number, Pennsylvania 65000, interviewing Telly Savalis, and playing his alto saxophone atop the Empire State Building, even though his ear for music was always more Lester Piggott than Lester Young. When he visited Katz's, he ordered a large salami to be delivered to our parents. A month later, my father received an official-looking letter. Dear Mr Diamond, 
a delivery to your address was attempted from the United States in contravention of the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food Directive, Section R4-108, brackets, Prepared and Processed Meat Product Importation, close brackets. The aforementioned meat product, a salami sausage, was intervened and directed to our Customs and Excise station in Peterborough, where it was destroyed. Yours, etc. Dad was pretty sure that the aforementioned meat product's diversion was to the Peterborough's accounts office, where it was destroyed with mustard between slices of hovis. For now, my parents would have to continue making do with the homegrown Gilbert's kosher salami available in the South Woodford branch of Waitrose. We fast forward to June 2001. By now, John, along with the BBC's holiday programme and its presenter Jill Dando, were sadly no more. My friend Mike and I went to New York as a cheering up exercise for me a few months after John's death. And everything I said about the 3D film set came true sooner than expected. Not knowing the subway system, we mistakenly took the A train, which sped us past our 94th Street stop and took us, as the Duke Ellington song promised, on the quickest way to Harlem. Consequently, my first view of Manhattan consisted of the following, meticulously arranged by central casting as our welcome to the Big Apple. Two youths with portable sound system breakdancing on the pavement. Three elderly men in pork pie hats loudly playing gin and rummy outside a barber shop on the corner of 125th and Broadway. Steam coming up through the air vents in the pavement. A police car making the familiar gadung sound as it went over a pothole. A lonesome train making its way along that viaduct you always see in documentaries about the Cotton Club. All that was missing was a besuited blind man in a rocking chair playing a harmonica. We did the usual tourist stuff. The Empire State, the Twin Towers a few months before 9-11, a Broadway musical, but what we mostly did was eat. The Key West Diner on Broadway for breakfast, John's Pizzeria on Times Square for dinner, and in between there were hot dogs, Yona Schimmel's Knishery, don't ask, and Katz's for a late lunch. After ordering two portions of pastrami on rye with fries large enough to cater an entire bar mitzvah, I had an idea. Knowing of John's failure to get a salami from Katz's to our parents, I would make it my mission to finish the job manually. So I went to the takeaway desk and bought a large premium salami. Mum and Dad would love this, I knew they would. With some effort we cleared our plates and I picked up the tab for both of us which is where I ran into difficulties. On the way into Katz's, all diners pick up a ticket which they hand in on leaving. I need your friend's ticket, said the woman at the cash desk. It's okay, I said. I'm paying for both of us. I don't care. I need his ticket. This was annoying. But it was also great because I was now starring in my very own episode of Seinfeld. So are you not going to let me pay? I asked, happy to affect the role of George Costanza. I need his ticket. I told you, I don't have it, but I'm paying for both of us. And it continued. 
Meanwhile, Mike was now in conversation with the enormous bouncer guarding the entrance door behind me. You guys from England? We're here from London for the weekend. Ever hear of a place called Leightonstone? Yes, I lived near there a couple of years ago. Oh man, sighed the bouncer. Those Leightonstone women are hot. Back at the hotel, I placed the salami in the inside pocket of my suitcase, wrapped in a t-shirt. During the return journey, I became as obsessed and nervous about being discovered contravening British prepared meat product importation laws as if I were carrying several kilos of cocaine. But nothing happened. It didn't show up at check-in, and I walked through the green door at Heathrow Customs without incident. Two days later, I delivered the salami to my parents. Mission accomplished. And a week after that, I called Mum. How was it? How was what? The salami, the vushd I dropped round there. Ah, thanks for bringing it back, but it was horrible. Like eating an old tyre. Oh. No, you weren't to know, and it was very sweet of you. I'd have expected better from Katz's, though, because everyone says how great they are. Is there any left? No, we threw it away, said Mum, and I sent Dad out to buy a Gilbert's one from Waitrose. Much nicer. That was The Salami, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then please hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe tell your friends. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 15. Captain Ginger. A bound collection of sheet music, mostly from the 19th and early 20th centuries, which belonged to my father. Some of its contents feel fragile now. A set of songs printed for the times, not for the ages. Few people resisted the change from vinyl to CD back in the 80s and 90s. Familiar albums now had a new depth and clarity to them. Some even needed remastering to get rid of the studio air conditioning or heavy breathing the format uncovered. Despite now struggling between the rock of Spotify and the hard place of vinyl snobbery, the compact disc still stands for quality and convenience. The only problem is the packaging. The album cover versus CD case argument is a hackneyed one. It usually starts with, I miss being able to follow the lyrics, and ends with, you can't skid up on a CD. We've all heard it, and I don't mean to replay it here. I do miss album covers, be they the iconic simplicity of Dark Side of the Moon, or the Byzantine intricacy of Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick but I'm still not bothered enough to return to vinyl. In fact, I only mention it because recorded sound, starting almost half a century before Columbia Records put together the first LP, itself killed off the art of sheet music. Commercial sheet music still exists, 
but Nell only features a publicity shot of the artist most associated with the song, if it features anything at all. However, the Edwardian era, and earlier, when it was the only method of distributing a song en masse, saw piano arrangements of popular songs with covers as detailed and as beautiful as Sergeant Pepper, or as subtle as its white follow-up. My dad was a fan of Music Hall, on both an intellectual and a deeply emotional level. As a kid, his own father worked long hours as a bookkeeper, and only got to properly spend time with his son on Saturday mornings. Grandpa would spend a lingering hour shaving and grooming himself at the kitchen sink, while Dad sat by him on a stool, and what they did together was sing music hall songs. This was their bonding time. They weren't the bike rides or go-kart manufacturer we see in Hollywood films, but few can deny the appeal of a six-year-old boy and his dad together singing The End of Me Old Cigar. Shortly after his D-Mob in 1947, at the age of 22, Dad joined Unity Theatre in Islington, the natural home for a young lefty with an urge to dress up and show off. At his audition, he sang one of his party pieces, Harry Bedford's A Little Bit Off The Top, and was not only accepted, but also invited to help run their music hall group. While the old variety theatres were dropping like flies, Unity saw music hall as a genuine manifestation of working-class culture, with great songs performed by incredible characters, a phenomenon worth preserving beyond the spontaneous choruses of Two Lovely Black Eyes before closing time. Their weekend music hall show, Wrinkles and Champagne, stayed in the repertoire by popular demand with cast and bill changes, and became such a hit that in 1948, BBC Television broadcast it live from their Lime Grove studios. It was Dad's first TV appearance. By day, Dad punctuated his biochemistry studies at Chelsea College with lunchtime trips to the sheet music department of Francis Day and Hunter on Charing Cross Road. FD and H was one of the linchpins of Tin Pan Alley, where singers and musicians earnestly sought the dots, the manuscripts and chord charts, essential for their profession. Experts, with an encyclopedic knowledge of their stock, usually besuited resting actors, staffed FD and H. On one occasion, the director of Winkles and Champagne sent Dad there to find an obscure old American vaudeville song. Do you have a copy of They're Wearing Them Higher in Hawaii? My father asked at the counter. The shop assistant instantly beamed, raised his two index fingers and sang, Oh, they're wearing them higher in Hawaii. No, sorry, love. We haven't seen it for years. In amongst the Agnes Shelton or Donald Pierce numbers in the second-hand sheet music section, Dad sought out yellowing gems as sung by Barry Lloyd, G.H. Chergwin and Dad's absolute favourite, Gus Elan. No one was buying them because by then no one was singing them. Plus, it needs saying, many of the songs were pretty terrible. Nearly all the numbers in Dad's collection probably haven't been heard in public for over a century. In fact, most musical songs might now be lost forever. And even when we think we know a number which has survived, we probably only know the chorus, 
often with good reason. Google the full lyrics to Lily of Laguna, for example, and you will see why we now only ever hear the refrain beginning, She's My Lady Love. The Unity Theatre Variety Group eventually split off and went professional, calling themselves the Victorians and obtaining a licence from London County Council to perform in the open-air park theatres. On a warm summer evening in the 1950s, up to 2,000 punters regularly paid one and six admission plus threepence for a song sheet to see Old Time Music Hall. The Victorians launched quite a few professional careers, including those of my Auntie Rose and Uncle Bernie, but it was to be the swan song of my father's theatrical endeavours. Juggling the needs of his day job as a scientist and a young family was hard enough, and my own arrival in 1959 proved a responsibility too far. Dad still occasionally donned his Leichner 5 and 9 makeup for an amateur or charity gig in subsequent years, so thankfully I got to see his renditions of Captain Ginger and my own favourite, The Spaniard That Blighted My Life. But his best audience was always his three sons, who insisted on two songs every night after the bedtime story. In 2014, my friend Toby co-wrote and directed a one-man show by Graham McPherson, better known as Suggs from the group Madness. He gave Anita and me comps when it played locally and afterwards, in a nearby pub, the director and star pumped me for my opinion of the show. It was brilliant. You know it was brilliant. But just one tiny thing. What's that? said Suggs. You sang a snippet from If It Wasn't For The Houses In Between and got the tune completely wrong. They both looked at each other. I told you it was wrong, said Suggs to Toby, then turning back to me. We couldn't find the sheet music, so all we had was an old recording on YouTube, and the quality was so bad we couldn't make out the tune. He whipped out his phone and pressed record. Could you sing it for me now? I hesitantly went through the first verse and chorus, while the nearest thing we have to a living musical legend held his phone next to me. Oh, it really is a very pretty garden, and Chingford to the eastward can be seen. And with a ladder and some glasses, I could see two acne marshes, if it wasn't for the houses in between. Cheers, Matt, said Suggs. But how do you know it? My dad used to sing it to me at bedtime. I think I'd have got on with your dad. I think he probably would. That was Captain Ginger, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.